Well, if you don't know, my name is Ricky Ragone. I'm the music and arts and youth pastor here. And uh, one day sitting in Lou's office, I decided that it would be a good idea to preach the Sunday after spending a week camping with teenagers at a theme park listening to music. My idea, my idea, my idea made prior to VBS and prior to Kingdom Bound. So I was at maximum decision-making capabilities. And I said, let's do that the Sunday after Kingdom Bound. Let's get this, let's do this on August 4th. So anyway, we'll just ask God, as Chris did, uh, we'll just ask him for a coherent thought in the preaching this morning. And uh, if there are blanks, Maybe they can be filled by the work of the Spirit this morning. No. Um, so, we are in Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, picking up where we left off last week. Uh, so, Galatians chapter 5 will be in verses uh, 16 through 26 this morning. Once we do get into the text, I think you'll find it's a quite uh, familiar text to us. Uh, but before we read it together, I want to do a quick recap um, and I mean, I mean quick because we got to get to it uh, this morning because this is a big section packed with a lot of stuff. Uh, so just to bring us all up to speed, in case you don't know, Galatians um, is a letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia and he was addressing a, a problem. He was writing passionately uh, and purposefully to address a problem that had happened. Uh, this group known as the Judaizers uh, were, were in the church uh, spreading uh, this false gospel that justification before God was Christ plus works of the law, specifically that of circumcision. And they were saying you had to have Christ, but you also had to do these things in order to be in right standing before God. Because that's what justification is. It's a legal term dealing with our guilt before God. To be justified means to be declared right, to be declared not guilty before God himself. So what Paul clearly and fervently declares in the start of this letter is that justification is only through faith in the perfect atoning work of Christ alone. Period. Not Christ plus anything. And this is the tension we see in the first four chapters of this letter. Of this letter. Law and gospel. Freedom, slavery, law, promise. We see this opposition of thought, what the Judaizers are teaching, and what Paul is trying to course correct through sound doctrine. Because if you're under the law, you're bound to the law. You're essentially, you have to fulfill everything in the law. You're in slavery to it. But if you are in Christ, you're freed from that burden because Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law and his righteousness is applied to us through faith and we are now his. And last week we, we talked about, Pastor Lou talked about that uh, true faith that justifies is proven by the experience of believers. There will be transformation. There will be new desires, new longings, and new love. Paul reminds the Galatians that the, the finished freedom they have in Jesus Christ, and he, he, he reminds them of that, and then he urges them to walk in that freedom. Don't go back to slavery. Don't go back to practicing idol worship or putting themselves under the law. Show evidence of the freedom you have in that life, and that Freedom manifests itself evidently in love. We experience the love of God in Christ through the gospel, and in turn we demonstrate that love for God in return and love 
for one another. Paul says the whole law is fulfilled in this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So a true gospel love for one another can only come through the Spirit's work in us as a result of our justification in Christ. We can't manufacture that kind of selfless love on our own. We love because Christ first loved us, because God first loved us. 1 John chapter 4. So all that, that very brief recap, leads us to where we're at this morning in chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. So I want to read that together, and then we'll, we'll break it down and we'll explore it. So verse 16, uh, I should have said this earlier while I gave you some time, but if you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back against the wall to the left of the sound booth. You can go grab one of those. The verses will be on the screen too as we go through a text. Verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. God had a blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. So... That's our text today. That's where we're going to be at for the next some minutes. <laughs> and what we're going to see in this uh, text this morning is that the desires of the flesh will be extinguished by the power of the Spirit working in us, giving us a greater understanding and affection for the gospel, which will bear fruit in our lives. The desires of the flesh will be extinguished by the power of the Spirit working in us, giving us a greater understanding and affection for the gospel, which will bear fruit in our lives. That's kind of a really long run-on sentence of where we're going to be in this sermon. So as we look closer, we'll break this passage into three sections. The conflict, verses 16 through 18, this conflict between, conflict between flesh and spirit. The contrast, the difference between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And then conduct, um, how, how should that look in, in light of those things? The first two sections are longer points. The third section, very small. And I, I say that just to, when you look down at your watch, and I'm on point two, and you're like, 40 minutes into this thing, you've got to wrap this up. Point number three, short. It's more or less a conclusion. So, may that be a comfort to you. Point number one, the conflict. If you weren't able to guess from the heading, we have a conflict in our text this morning. 
Conflict, it's nothing new in this letter. Paul, Paul was in conflict with the Judaizers over this false gospel of teaching. We saw Paul was in conflict with Peter when he was out of step with the gospel. But this morning, the conflict we're looking at is differently. It's not person-to-person conflict. I guess it could show forth in that way um, as it's fleshed out. But this is really, we're dealing with a conflict that's an inner conflict this morning. The flesh and the spirit. Though the outcome of our faith is a, is a sure thing, we have a sure hope, uh, we have this, this firm foundation and hope of living with God forever and ever in eternal perfect paradise. If, if we have put our faith and trust in Christ, that's our hope. That's what we can hold on to. But we still live in the here and now. So we have a hope of a completely sinless world and eternity and sinless paradise, but we are living in the present reality of a sinful and broken world. So though in the end our desires will be aligned perfectly with our triune God, with our Creator, right now we're in the process of having those desires shaped. And it's not a quick process. We, we, we'll say that throughout this, it's not quick, it's not overnight. As we go through this process, we have to navigate this conflict, this battle between flesh and spirit, this tug of war. Because Paul tells us in verse 17 that the flesh and the spirit, they're actually opposed to each other. The flesh is opposed to the spirit. The spirit's opposed to the flesh. Like, like magnets, when you try and line them up the wrong way, and you just can't quite get them to... You try to really hard to... I want to connect them, but they just don't connect. Just like that. Complete odds with one another. They will not work. So to understand this, this conflict, I think it's un, important to understand both sides. So we start with the flesh. What is Paul talking about when he says the flesh? He's, he's not referring to our physical body makeup. Like the, he's not referring to like the epidermis, like, ah, darn you, skin. He's not talking about our, our physical bodies. Paul's not preaching what's called Gnosticism, where, where it's like physical body, bad, spiritual, good. Now Paul's talking, uh, he's using this, this word, this Greek word, sarks. This, this flesh that he's referring to is our sin nature. Our propensity towards the things that are against God. Our rebellion to God. Sin. He refers to this in Ephesians 4 as our old self. Paul provides more of an insight of the definition of the flesh uh, in, in Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live in according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, and here's, here's, the, here's that definition, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's the flesh. We're hostile towards God. The, f- the flesh is in opposition to God himself, does not submit to God's law, is actually in- unable to do so. That's what Paul means when he says flesh. So then the spirit, in turn, then, is not, does not mean just spiritual. There's a lot of spiritual things out there. That doesn't mean they're good things. This idea of soul versus body. But, but the spirit that Paul is referring to is the very Holy Spirit of God, capital S. 
living within us. The Spirit of God who opened our eyes to see the beauty of Christ is the Spirit who is actively within us, conforming us to the image of Jesus. The Spirit of God who is our comforter, our helper, the one who convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit is the one who reveals to us our fleshly nature and also who works in us to transform it. So that's the Spirit. You have flesh, spirit. They're in conflict. And it's happening within us. And this inner conflict has, has resulted in much trouble for the Galatian church. That's why Paul's addressing it. Conflict in their fellowship with one another. That's why he has to tell them to love and serve one another. And he concludes this section by, like, don't devour one another. It shows forth in their life. We see this conflict in our lives. It's a maddening conflict. But Paul refers to it in Romans. He's like, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. That's what this results in. We're in this tension. One moment we can feel so in touch with the heart of God. And, and the next morning, or the next moment, I should say, it's out the window. We're in the flesh. A, a, a very easy example that we can think of, and probably more of us can relate to than we want to admit, is uh, put yourself in a car. Yes, yeah, already. Oh, yeah, the car. The car. We had this little force field where it's like, my sin doesn't matter in here. Right? We're driving, maybe listening to some positive, encouraging K-love. Maybe listening to a little audio Bible, engaging with the Word of God. This is nice. This is nice. But then, ah, someone cuts you off and goes in front of you. And then all of a sudden, it's just like, Forget what's on the radio. Forget what I'm doing here. It's like, you're number one, buddy. And I don't mean with this one. <laughs> the flesh comes out. How does that happen so easily? It's this tension we live in. Flesh and spirit. So how do we overcome the desires of the flesh? Because they seem to rear their ugly head all too often. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, that sounds great. What does that mean? What does that mean? I think to, to understand what Paul is saying, we need to take a look at this, uh, this little sandwich of verses uh, put together. This, this Spirit sandwich. Where we see, verse 16, walk by the Spirit. But then verse 18, we're led by the Spirit. It's a, there's a twofold aspect to life in the Spirit of God. We, we walk by the Spirit. It's, it's a very active thing that we, we do. But we're also led by the Spirit. The Spirit's doing the leading. It's, it's passive on our end. The Spirit is, is, is leading us. And we can't walk by the Spirit unless we're led by the Spirit. So the Spirit leads, and then we respond. We're led by the Spirit, and we walk by the Spirit. So, I just to expand on that a little more, we'll, we'll start with verse 18. I know I'm kind of, I was in 17, now we're going to go to 18 and then back to 16. But it's how I can wrap my mind around it to hopefully communicate it in a way in which you can get it to. So, if we're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. If we're being led by the Spirit, that means we're in submission to the Spirit's rule and reign in us. 
The Spirit is, is changing our desires from wanting to gratify the flesh to wanting to gratify the Spirit, to gratify God Himself. The Spirit's changing our desires from being hostile to God to desiring Him. He, he's leading us in that. It's not like we say, okay, Spirit, I want to change now. And the Spirit's like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, that was washing. It looked like he was rubbing my belly. Um, but that's not, that's not what it is. The Spirit is changing us to where the flesh, the, the flesh doesn't look desirable, but God looks beautiful and glorious. The Spirit's leading. And as the Spirit leads and those desires are changed, we're now to walk in those Spirit-transformed desires. Walk by the Spirit. It's an, it's an ongoing thing. It's a consistent and, and cognitive pursuit of God and rejection of sin. Pursuit of God and rejection of sin. It's an active thing. It's an important distinction. It's an important distinction that I'm talking about sanctification right here. I'm not talking about salvation. Salvation, we're dead in our sins. And the Spirit regenerates us. We don't do anything in that. I'm not talking that the, we were dead. Dead people can't do anything. So we're passive while the Spirit is active and awakening us to the beauty of Christ and the truth of the Gospel. But in our sanctification, as we're living this life... We can't remain passive as we live each day. Each day, where We need to be actively seeking God and, and walking in the Spirit. Actively seeking God, denying the flesh. So I just want to make, make that distinction. Don't come out like, I don't want to leave here like, well, all this whole sermon series has been about how it's all what Christ has done. And now we're actively doing something in our sanctification, in how we live this out. So what does that look like? The, the, uh, the obvious answers. How, how are we going to grow in this and how are we going to learn to walk by the Spirit? By spending time with God in His Word, in prayer, in regular, commu- regular community with other believers and, and serving others. That's what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. None of those things are just passive activities. There, there's got to be an intentionality to it. If we want to combat the desires of the flesh... We need to actively be pursuing the things of God. So as we spend time in the Word, as we spend time in prayer, as we spend time with other believers, the Spirit's at work in that. And what's the Spirit doing in that? As we walk in it, He's, he's continuing to lead. He's continuing to change uh, our passions from wanting to gratify the passions of the flesh to the passion for our Savior. We walk by the Spirit through the power of the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit through the power of the Spirit. The Spirit does the work, we respond in action. That's the order. Pastor John Piper, he describes being led by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit in this way. Quote, The Spirit is not a leader like the pace car in the Daytona 500. He's a leader like a locomotive on a train. We don't follow in our own strength. We're led by His power. So we walk by the Spirit means to stay hooked up to the divine source of power and go wherever He leads, end quote. Walk by the Spirit, but we're led by the Spirit. Paul also reminds him, uh, down here in verse 18, 
If you're led by the Spirit, guess what? You're not under the law, going back to the law. Because remember, the law can't justify. Also, the law cannot transform us. But the Spirit of God can and will transform us if we are in Christ. The law can only reveal the problem. The Spirit gives us the power and the ability to overcome it. I see the striking parallel between 18 and 16, where we're walking by the Spirit, we're led by the Spirit. And the Spirit combats both gratifying the desires of the flesh, and it combats being under the law. So it combats both living above the law and sinning. It also combats this also sinful way of trying to have the law save you. And trying to, to, to make the law the be-all, end-all. It combats both of them. And both frames of thought are in opposition to the Spirit. If we're under the law, and we're, and we're living day by day, uh, as Paul, sorry, going back to verse 17, Paul, Paul says these things are in opposition to each other, uh, preventing, preventing us from doing the things we want to do. Verse 17. So, we want to do these things, we want to do the things of God, we inevitably fall on our faces. This is the problem with living either under the law or above the law, and then what it looks like if we're in the Spirit. So we fail day by day. Some days are good. Some days are bad. If we're under the law, if we're moralistic, when we fail, we're going to be stuck in crippling guilt. Why? Because we failed. And now we need to figure out how we can fix it to, to work our way back up to where we were before and get higher on the ladder of moral living. And the cycle of moralistic living begins. And it goes over and over and over again because we're under the law. We're trying to fulfill everything in the law. We have to do the law in order for God to, to, to love us. Even though we're in Christ and we see that He already loves us, we get stuck in this moralistic path that's living under the law. It, it leaves us in this never-ending guilt But if we're above the law, and we're trying to live day by day doing the things of God, but we're not able to do the things of God, it doesn't matter. Grace. Man, we got grace. Who cares? My actions may be bad. I'm not grieved over it. Are you kidding? Grace abounds. God is good. There's no need to repent. That doesn't sound right either. But if we're walking by the Spirit, and we fail... It truly stings. We feel the weight of that. Because feeling the weight of our sin is a good thing. But in the Spirit, the Spirit reminds us of Christ's redeeming work. Reminds us of all that's been accomplished on the cross. And we repent of that sin that we truly feel guilty over. We repent, remind ourselves of the freedom we have in Christ... Right? Romans 8 tells us that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Spirit reminds us we're loved, we're cherished, we're redeemed. We're reminded of God's affections for us. So that way our affections are turned from a passion for sin, flesh, to a passion for God. So the sin over here that disgusts us, that we don't want, we, we see there's, there's freedom from that. I can repent, I can turn to God. And he still loves me. I'm still his child. I don't just think, no big deal. I also don't think, oh my goodness, now I have to do all this in order to get to God. That's, that's the, how the Spirit combats both those things. 
And that affection changed only through the power of the Spirit. That's the conflict. So how does this conflict show itself in our lives? Let's look at the contrast between these two things, flesh and spirit. Before we dive into these two lists, uh, I just want to let you know that this is not going to be an exhaustive look at either list. Uh, That would take uh, far too long. But um, we're going to be looking at it from a bird's eye view. But if you want to look closer at what the fruit of the Spirit is, we did a whole series a couple summers ago called Fruit of the Spirit uh, Internal Gospel Growth, where we go through each individual one and we look at that and, and, and how it plays out in our lives. If you want to go deeper into this section, go on our website, kingschapel.net, go to the sermons area, you'll, you'll see the Fruit of the Spirit logo, click on that, you'll get a more in-depth look than we're going to have this morning. This is kind of a bird's eye view, flesh, spirit. So... Uh, Yeah, I just encourage you to, if you weren't here for that series, to really check that out. So let's explore these lists, and let's start with with the flesh. So Paul's saying, all right, what are these desires of the flesh I'm talking about? What does this look like? Well, see for yourself. Here's, Here's the works of the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not even an exhaustive list. He just wraps it up in things like these, which could go on for a I don't know, this many pages. Works of the flesh. We don't need a bigger list because we are all too familiar with what that list looks like. But this list alone is, a, is enough to probably make anyone in this room like kind of squirm a little bit. Like, oh, I don't like that list. These are the ways that the desires of our flesh, the desires of our sinful nature, manifest themselves. Some commentators, uh, uh, many of them actually, categorize this list into four different uh, I don't know, sections or nature of these fleshly works. And I thought that was helpful to kind of break it down. So you have those, the, the fleshly works of a sensual nature with sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Um, and that covers an array of different things within that sphere. Then you have uh, works of a religious or spiritual nature, idolatry, sorcery, dabbling in those things. You have the fleshly works of a personal nature. You know, how we interact with each other. That's the long part. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy. And then there's the fleshly works of a self-indulging nature, or or what we consume. Drunkenness and orgies. Now, what Paul is referring to here, if you're wondering why orgies is not in the first category, is because he's probably referring to less of one of a sexual nature, but more of one uh, of of just like a, a drug or substance nature, gathering in this big kind of heavy, excessive substance abuse, heavy drink, drugs, etc. So that's where those two are lumped together. And these are categories people commonly break this list into, and I just think it's a, a helpful way to look at it, because those categories pretty much sum up a, a whole lot of sin. And what Paul is demonstrating through this list of vices is that the desire for the flesh manifests itself in many, 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 many different ways. 
Maybe sexuality isn't a vice of yours, but you've got a major problem with anger. Maybe you've never touched drugs or alcohol, but you get a kick out of just stirring up some trouble. Let's make a church implode. We may look at this list and we see sorcery and we go, <laughs> sorcery? That's not a thing. Well, I'm sure people have dabbled in some fortune telling or mystical things. These are all ways we, we run to, idolatry is one of them. How many times do we run to idols and make them ultimate things? The flesh manifests itself in different ways. And Paul didn't write this list to pretend like, oh, I don't struggle with these things. Here's the list of, of things that I never do, but here's what you guys do. Paul makes it clear. Uh, especially uh, in Romans, he mentions it here in 17, doing the things you want to do. But in Romans, he says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. So Paul isn't giving this list of works of the flesh as a, a way of communicating, communicating he's some way morally superior. He's providing a list of works of the flesh that they might read it and the sin in their life might be revealed to them. Kind of like something else was supposed to do, but then it got radically abused. Oh, the law. That's what the law was supposed to do. It was supposed to reveal our sin to us that we might see it and turn to God and trust in Him and knowing, I'm never going to do this on my own, but I need the Lord. It was never meant to be a list of do's and don'ts. It was to reveal to us what we do and an awful lot of things we shouldn't. Um, and this list of works of the flesh is, is no different. This isn't a list for Paul to say, cut this out, put it on your fridge, look at it, don't do these, don't do them. I mean, it's true, don't, don't, don't do them. <laughs> but that's not the point of it. The point was to reveal to them that the flesh is very much at work. It's very much evident. And this list is provided that the Spirit might convict those who hear it and read it to repent and cling to Christ. And after this list of vices, Paul pulls no punches. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not as much of a condemnation as is a warning. It's really an invitation to repent of these things. Now, what Paul is not saying is if you've ever struggled with anything on this list, you're done. Out. No, no hope. No chance. That's not what he's saying. Maybe that's what the legalist would say. But Paul isn't saying that. When he says those who do such things, he's saying those who make a regular practice of those who are habitually doing this. Not if you struggle with this, you won't make it into the kingdom of heaven. Otherwise, we're all doomed. We're all doomed. Gratifying the passions of the flesh and battling against the passions of the flesh are two different things. Saying, yeah, I know this is sinful. I just don't care. is very different than saying... I know this is sinful, and I just want it out of my life. Two very different things. What Paul is saying is the first one. If that's your attitude, you're never going to inherit the kingdom of God. The first response is the response of one fully surrendered to the flesh. 
But the second is someone surrendered and walking by the Spirit. It's being led by the Spirit. One who is repulsed by their sin because they know the beauty of the Savior. Where are you this morning? Does sin make you say, eh, so what? So what? Or does it doesn't make you say, as the man in the parable Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector, does your sin make you say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. That's the flesh. Those are the works of the flesh. How we see them play out. Thankfully, this is a contrasting section, so we got the flesh out of the way. Let's look at the good. Let's look at the hope. Let's look at the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22. Oops. But, when, when Paul says but, it's usually a very good thing. But, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is a better list. I can get on, I'm on board with this list. Notice how, how Paul differenti- differentiates this section from the first. The first section, he's talking about the works, multiple works of the flesh. Varied. But then here he calls this list of virtues fruit of the Spirit. Not fruits of the Spirit. One fruit of the Spirit. Singular. Not not to say that some might have love and some might have patience. But fruit, singular, meaning if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. All of this fruit should be growing and showing forth in your life. And I believe Paul begins this list intentionally with love. So this verse 13 and 14 last week. If you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love fulfills the law. A love for God and a love, should na- and for love for neighbor should be our motivation for all that we do. We love because God first loved us. Where does that desire to love come from? The Spirit at work in our hearts. If we're motivated by, this, by a Spirit-empowered love rooted in the Gospel, all these other fruit will start to show themselves. If, I, if I'm growing in a love for God and a love for people, and the Spirit is doing this work in me, as He's leading me as the locomotive, then I should be growing in joy. I should be growing in peace should be growing in patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And I'm saying growing in these things because it's a process. Which is why I love that Paul uses the word fruit as the descriptor. Because you have this fruit that starts in the seed that's beneath the surface. And there's, there's some sprouting and whatever seeds do under the surface that we don't see. But there's growth there. And eventually... Oh, there's a little green leaf sticking up out of the ground. And then that's like a bush. And then it's a really tall sapling type tree. And then it's an actual full tree. And then it's bearing fruit. You can pick an apple up and you can eat it. It's this, this process over time. And it's, it's hard to see it when you're in the moment. But over time you look back and you go, where did that come from? We got a, we got a tree here. The Spirit at work over time. Spiritual growth is growth measured 
over time. Katie and I have, have conversations. If you don't know, Katie's my wife. We have conversations and she'd be like, wow, you never would have acted like that when we first got married. Thanks. That was encouraging. That's evidence of the Spirit at work. I remember there was one time, I think this, just this year, we had a doozy of a band rehearsal. And uh, I got a text. I got a text from John, uh, one of the drummers, and he just said, like, wow, man, I really feel like you handled that well because that could have went really poorly. And he's in shock because he's been playing drums with me for a very long time. So he's seen doozies happen. And the flesh comes out, and it's not good. And I usually have to go on the apology tour of like, no, I should not have done that. Um, Which is important to do. When we sin against people, we should apologize for it. Um, But it's really encouraging to when someone observes like, there's a change there. That little sapling, maybe it's more of a tree. Now, that's not to say if we have another doozy, I'm not going to mess up, but it's not like, oh, well, we got smooth sailing from here on out, but I praise God for, not, not because like, oh man, Ricky's so good now, like, band leader supreme, no, uh, it's the spirit at work, and it's all glory to God, it's just to, to give it a reality of an example of when I looked at my life, like, yeah, no, I would have acted this way, somehow now I act this way, and I can't attribute it to myself, but it's all by the spirit at work bearing fruit. It's slow growth over time that sometimes we don't see ourselves, but others observe it. Others observe it. This morning, you you may be here discouraged because you are not where you want to be. You're not living how you want to live. You feel as though um, you should be living differently in your faith. Let me encourage you this morning. I'm not doing it perfect. Neither was Paul when he wrote this. But the question we must ask ourselves is, am I the same today as when I first came to know Christ? Am I the same? Or how have my desires changed? How has um, the Spirit been at work in me over the past months, the past years, for some past decades? I think if you you look back at over that time or, or ask someone close to you, You'd be encouraged by the work that the Spirit's doing. It's growth over time. It's not overnight. It's my hope you'd be encouraged by the, the fruit of the Spirit, by the work of the Spirit in you. Paul gives them the, this encouragement. Gospel reality. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He's saying, remember, Galatians, in Christ, sin has been defeated. As Paul says in Romans uh, 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In the gospel, there's this already not yet aspect. If we belong to Christ, sin is defeated. It's done. It's been nailed to the cross. It's a sure hope on which we stand. That's Already done. But there's also this not yet aspect because we'd still live, as I said earlier, in this broken world marred by sin. So the Spirit's still at work in us, helping us to crucify those sinful desires. So it's been dealt with. It's finished. Christ said on the cross, it is finished. But we're still living day by day by the power of the Spirit, needing to put that sin to death. 
harkens back to Galatians 2. For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved and gave himself for me. Rejoice in the work being done. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's both a finished work and, a, and we are a work in progress. Christ's work is done. It's finished. It's complete. We rest in that. And as we rest in that, the Spirit leads us to put to death the sin in our lives. Already, not yet. Almost to say to sin, like, you're, you're dead to me, but then the sin just wants to keep coming back, and we have to keep going, like, no, you're done. I'm in Christ. Christ has bought me. You've brought me nothing but trouble. Christ has brought me nothing but peace and joy. And it's that daily thing. Now, I wasn't going to do it, but it's like a Seinfeld episode. George tries to break up with a girlfriend. And this girlfriend keeps saying no. She won't let him break up with him. And George is stuck in this relationship. Now, the difference between the two is we have the spirit who, who bops the sin on the head and says, get out of here, and we're able to overcome. But it's like that, where it's like we're saying, no, we're done, and sin's like, no, we're not. And it's this daily battle. But we don't do it on our own. It's not our own strength. We have the Spirit of God in us, helping us overcome that nagging voice of sin in flesh. So we're in this conflict, flesh and spirit. They manifest themselves in contrasting ways, works of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit. And as the Spirit continues His work in us, we should see a a change in our conduct. Verse 25 If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Paul concludes with with another way of speaking about our lives um, as we follow the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Very similar to that of, of, of walking by the Spirit. The Spirit's leading, but... We also have a role in following. So if we live by the Spirit, the Spirit that breathes life, provides strength, we should keep in step with the Spirit. He's alluding to like a soldier marching, keeping in step with the leader. Spirit leads, provides strength and the means, and we are still responsible to live in obedience to that. And he wraps up the portion of the letter, and he takes a look at like, if you're living by the Spirit, you're walking by the Spirit, here's what it will look like. But this time... Instead of saying it in the positive, he's saying it in the negative. If you're keeping in step with the Spirit, then let us not become conceited, provoke one another, or envy one another. It's like the opposite of what Paul said in in verse 13. For as you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So walking by the Spirit and living in uh, the Spirit looks like loving and serving one another and not becoming conceited and provoking one another or envying one another. It's kind of like a, in the bookends of this section. If we're walking by the Spirit, we're being led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, it should show forth in our conduct. In that order, the Spirit works, the Spirit leads, and we respond. These lists, this works of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit, manifests itself if we're 
living by the Spirit, we show love. And we show all these things. And we don't want to live out the works of the flesh, which would leave us conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And we will continue to, to love and to serve one another as we remember um, that, we, that we've come to this place all in the same way. By the grace of God, because of what Christ has done on the cross. If we remember that, we'll treat others differently. If we remember the love that God showed us, we're going to treat each other differently. We're not going to be conceited, provoke one another. We'll hopefully uh, envy one another. We all come the same way. That's why together, all of us, that's why we partake of communion together. We've all come the same way. This is a means of grace by which the Spirit is at work reminding us of the gospel by which we've been saved. This communion table is designed to fix our eyes on the work of Christ and put behind us the things of the flesh. When we take of communion, we're reminded of Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross, how His body was broken for us, that's the bread, and His Shed blood to wash away our sins, that's the cup. This is a table that reminds us that sin has been crucified, put to death once and for all through Jesus Christ. This is a table for anyone who professes Christ as their Savior, as a follower of Him, not just a King's Chapel table. So as we, as we make this, uh, we respond in taking of communion. Spend time reflecting on the gospel. We, we repent of our sins. We celebrate the forgiveness we have on Christ, in Christ. Also, you can take some of this time in reflection and, and look at your life and rejoice at how the Spirit of God has been at work and how He will continue that work until we are one day with Him forever and ever in perfection and glory. This table, as I said, is a means of grace. It reorients us on the gospel. As the flesh rears its ugly head, we remember that Christ has defeated it on the cross. May that spirit continue to impress that truth deeper and deeper in our hearts this morning. Growing fruit that He alone can cultivate. And you may be sitting here this morning and you're like, none of this makes any sense. You're speaking gibberish. I have never put my faith in Christ. I don't know what that means. So if, if you're not a follower of Christ, it's my hope and my prayer that this morning that would change, that the Spirit of God is at work, even where you can't see it, and that you would come to know Jesus as Savior. If you haven't done that, we just ask that you not take from this communion table today, because as it was said, it's for those who have put their faith and trust, trust in Christ. But we just pray that the Spirit of God would be at work in your heart, helping you see the beauty of Christ, and that today would be the day you come and follow Him. So, this morning, let us um, take some time and, and reflect on Christ's finished work, on the continued work of the Spirit. And uh, let me just pray as we move into this time of response together. So, Father, we thank You for Your love. We thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your mercy. None of which we, we deserve, but 
you pour out onto us abundantly. For we know that all too often we, we get caught up in our flesh and we do the things that we don't want to do that are unpleasing to you. We just ask that you would help us to remember the cross this morning. That sin has been put to death by Jesus Christ. That in him we are no longer our old selves, but are made new, completely changed, washed white as snow, adopted children. Lord, we just ask that we would be transformed more so by the power of your Spirit. Let us walk in this truth this morning. We pray for the Spirit's continued work in our lives, that our affection for the flesh would be completely reoriented to an affection for our triune God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.